All right, my name is Jake Cosgrove. Welcome to the University of Texas at Austin's International Relations and Global Studies Council. This is the International Security Board, and we are bringing you International Relations Sensations uh, podcast number one. Uh, like I said earlier, my name is Jake Cosgrove. I'm a freshman IRG major, and I'm going to pass it on to Marianne Hurtado, our IS board chair. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Marianne Hurtado. I'm a junior here at UT Austin studying international relations and government, or not minoring, but getting a certificate in security studies. Uh, super happy to be here. I'm going to pass it on to Natalia. Hi, everyone. My name's Natalia, and I'm a sophomore here at UT Austin. I am majoring in international relations and global studies as well, and also pursuing a certificate in security studies and I'll pass it over to Angelina. Hi there. Um, first of all, sorry if my voice sounds uh, peculiar. I have a sore throat, so, so sorry to all of our listeners. Um, my name is Angelina Braze. I am a freshman international relations and European studies double major, and I am so very happy to be here today, and I am going to pass it over to Valerie. Hi, everyone. I'm Valerie Ferguson. I am an international relations and global studies major. I'm a sophomore, and yeah, that's all about me. <laughs> so that's the team here for tonight. Um, we have recorded a uh, a practice podcast, but this is our first official episode, and we have a lot to go over in the international community. So we're going to jump right into it. Our first topic tonight is uh, the Biden administration's decision to pull out of Afghanistan. So as our many of our listeners know, um, the United States has been involved in Afghanistan for the last 20 years. As Biden said this last week, uh, it has become a generational war, meaning that the sons and daughters of those who initially invaded in 2001 and 2002 currently have children uh, stationed in Afghanistan. So we have been there a long time. And to be honest, the Biden Biden's decision to pull out of Afghanistan is not a surprise. He has been a huge proponent of this since uh, 2014, 2015, when he was the vice president. He has long said, long been a sole proponent really during the Obama years of pulling out of Afghanistan. But uh, he pulled the trigger uh, during his presidency. Not a huge surprise. I personally am worried about the future of the region. During the Trump administration, there was a peace deal made with the Taliban and the, the Americans in Afghanistan, in Afghanistan. Unsure on the stability of that in the coming years. It's not, America doesn't have like an overwhelming military force there. Uh, we're pulling out about the last 2,500 troops on the September 11th, the 20th anniversary of 9-11 attacks. So Biden does love his semi-poetic events in nature. He does he does like to do things very cleanly. Yeah, this opens up an interesting discussion Interesting discussion on the success of Afghanistan as a country in the future. Will their government be able to stay stable? And what role does the Taliban have on the, on a, on the global stage? Those are uh, some things to think about with this. And I'm going to open up the floor. I do not, I'm not entirely sure of the implications of us pulling out of Afghanistan. I think... Biden is going to get criticized, whatever he does, by people on both the progressive left wing of the Democratic Party and uh, the entirety of the Republican Party. I don't think there's any single way that he can make people happy with his foreign policy choices. I personally don't know how entirely smart it is to pull everyone out of Afghanistan because the Taliban does have a large grasp of control over the country. So we will just see what the future holds for the people of Afghanistan. I don't think this is a choice that is being 
made in their interest. I'm wishing them the best of luck. Yeah, I think you raise a very interesting point. I think the sort of duality of it all is that during the Trump administration, we obviously pulled out of Syria. Uh, we pulled a lot of troops out of a lot of places in the world and sort of Trump preached this idea of primacy and isolationism that we hadn't seen in almost a century in the United States. And yet, Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell came out and said, this administration has abandoned U.S. efforts in the Middle East, in Afghanistan, uh, which is, once again, it's very Mitch McConnell, it's very Republican Party to defend Trump when he when he pulled troops out of the Middle East and yet uh, attack Joe Biden for the same actions. So yeah, I mean, Biden was going to get criticized for staying in Afghanistan by the Democrats and going to get criticized by the Republicans for pulling out. Marianne, did you have something to say? Yeah, so... It's actually intriguing because um, the director of the CIA, William Burns, um, and this is like directly from this AP article, he actually said that this might affect the intelligence intelligence community's ability to collect like intel in that region because of this like pulling out in that the CIA and all of our partners in the U.S. government will retain a suite of capabilities in that area uh, and contest any build, rebuilding effort. And that's directly from the article. Um, thank you, AP. So uh, I'm genuinely like curious to see how this is gonna shape the IC um, and how it's gonna affect our foreign policy recommendations, our, or not recommendations, but um, briefings that are given to the executive branch. Yeah, so, it'll be curious how um, how our agencies interact with Biden at the helm, because Biden does, I mean, he's been talking about this for a long time, so it's almost expected. Speaking of uh, pulling out of regions, we, on this kind of polar opposite of that, a little 180, we have seen a massive piling up of troops on the Ukrainian border by uh, the Russians. And I know that Natalia uh, wanted to take point on that. So Natalia, take it away. Yeah, so an increasing number of Russian troops have been deployed near Ukraine's border within the last two weeks. In fact, on Monday, the EU revealed that there are currently over 100,000 troops in bordering regions. And uh, I think it's important to note uh, Russia's response um, in regards to all of this. Um, so Russia claims that its military buildup um, is a response to threats from NATO. According to Russia's defense minister, this spring NATO began an initiative called Defender Europe 2021. And American forces have apparently been moved into the Black Sea and Baltic regions. And so I guess Russia has felt threatened as a result of that as well. And on April the 13th, Biden and Putin spoke over the phone, over this issue. Yeah, any thoughts? Yeah, what's happening in the Ukraine is, um, I don't want to say terrifying, but it's definitely concerning. So obviously, Russia is saying that uh, the biggest buildup of Russian troops in the Ukraine since their annexation, I mean, near the Ukraine since their annexation of Crimea in 2014 is a response to the Ukrainian government's push for NATO membership. But it's obviously a bigger deal than just that. NATO did warn Russia over the amount of troops they've built up close to the Ukrainian border. Um, I feel like it might be a tactic to take attention off the fact that Russia's most prominent critic is currently being starved to death in a penal colony, but I, I'd really like for there to not be outright conflict in the area because that is the last thing the world needs right now. Yeah, um, it is obviously a, a topic of great tension and I doubt it 
that we'll see direct American involvement. But I mean, America and Biden love, love throwing around harsh words towards Putin. Biden has not held back in recent days surrounding Alexei Navalny. And uh, that is obviously, as Angelina said, been a huge topic in, in the international community recently. Angelina, do you want to talk a little bit more about Alexei Navalny? Yeah, so Alexei Navalny, uh, known as Russia's most prominent critic, Putin's party, United Russia, hey Navalny. Navalny was subject to an attempted assassination attempt in August of 2020. Um, it failed. Navalny was sent to Germany for treatment after the assassination attempt obviously failed. And upon returning to Russia in January of this year, he was charged with violating his parole by leaving the country except he kind of had to leave the country in an attempt to stay alive after being poisoned by a Russian nerve agent. So Navalny is allegedly days away from dying. He has been on a hunger strike for the past, I want to say, 10 days, something like that, because uh, the man is really sick and Russian officials are refusing to let a doctor inside his penal colony. That is the official word used by the Russian government. They are refusing to let a doctor inside to check up on him. Uh, They're saying nothing is wrong with him. Navalny's spokesman people are saying that there is obviously something very wrong with him, but no one is letting him have the medical attention he needs so desperately. And um, the Russian government does not want to make a martyr out of Navalny. So I think they're in a bit of a pickle right now. And it's not like the international community can storm in and send in a SEAL team to extract him. That's not possible. That would be a big, big violation of Russia's national sovereignty. But I, I do not know how this is going to play out. I do not want the man to die. Nobody wants the man to die because he has done a lot for Russia. I feel like he might be Russia's only chance at a more prosperous future, but we'll see how it plays out. Obviously, I am hoping and wishing and praying for the best, but I do not know how this is going to play out. It really does beg the question of when are other groups, like, excuse me, like human rights groups going to step in and say like, really, really get on Russia, on Russia's back for what they're doing. Because, I mean, violating someone's human rights on a global and like very prominent international stage is not something that the rest of the world takes lightly. Uh, it is obviously very apparent. It's not really apparent like Russia's trying to hide anything at this point. I mean, it was pretty apparent when they poisoned him and he was on death's door in Germany and then immediately arresting him as soon as he touched down in Russia. So it's not like in the past two years, they've tried to hide that they're, they don't like this man and they're willing to kill him. So, I mean, it's just, it really will test the international community on, will they get involved? Can Russia do this without facing repercussions other than sanctions from from the West um, that really Russia has dealt with in the past, um, which is it's not something new. So will the West, will America, will NATO do anything to to come to Navalny's aid or will will they sort of stand by and let let Russia run this one through? Yeah, it's really concerning. And all we can do is wait and hope for the best. Of course. Uh, Moving on to our uh, fourth topic, we have um, So in recent weeks, Iran has been in the news a lot. And Marianne is going to talk about their uranium enrichment process. Yeah, so um, I don't know if you can hear my laptop overheating, probably just because, um, you know, this news on Iran is so concerning, probably 
That's why. Um, so Iran has begun its process of uranium enrichment. So for background, uranium enrichment is a process that elevates the levels of concentration of uranium-235. This is the isotope that can power nuclear reactors and bombs starting at a 90% level of purity. So to put things into perspective, in 2019, Iran crossed a line set by the 2015 nuclear deal, which agreed to keep uranium enrichment levels under a 3.67% purity. And um, they reached a level of 4.5% enrichment and officials from the Iranian Atomic Energy Organization warned that they could go to 20%. So today we are actually looking at a 60% fissile purity according to um, routers. Reuters, um, which states that this was in response to an explosion at an enrichment plant in Natanz, which Tehran blames Israel for. So we have much to unpack here. Um, any thoughts? Yeah, so just literally under an hour ago at like 6.28 p.m. Central Time, the New York Times dropped a very long piece on uh, Israel's involvement uh, in, in Iranian government. Um, and I mean, their, their uh, opening quote was recent attacks or quote, recent attacks suggest that Israel has a clandestine network inside Iran and that Iranian security services have been powerless to break it. Um, the article extremely detailed dates back or cites attacks all the way back to 2007 um, in which Israel started assassinating key figures of the Iranian nuclear program. So, I mean, if, these, these are obviously not, there's not an overwhelming amount of evidence, but I mean, many top international security uh, experts have uh, really pointed to Israel being the culprit for these two explosions. Once again, not proven, but I mean, uh, a year ago, Israel uh, was cited assassinating Mohsen, I apologize if I mispronounced this, Fakhridas, Iran's uh, chief nuclear scientist and a brigadier general in the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. That was in November. Uh, so Israel has been very active in Iran. In 2018, Israel carried out a nighttime raid to steal half a ton of secret archives from Iran's nuclear program from a warehouse in Tehran. Just nine months ago, an assassin on a motorbike fatally shot an Al-Qaeda commander in, that was seeking refuge in Tehran and an Iranian chief nuclear scientist was machine gunned on a country road, and then followed by these two explosions in nuclear facilities. It's just very overwhelming amount of fingers being pointed at Israel, and it really begs the question of like, where is Israel maybe crossing the line of international sovereign or national sovereignty? And how much of this is like, quote unquote, national defense? And where will this go with, I mean, Biden talking about re-entering JCPOA talks how will that, how will Iran respond, Iran respond uh, to things like that? So it's, it's a very complicated situation. It is not slowing down anytime soon. It's also um, remarkable how much we don't know uh, about Israel's alleged nuclear program, because as of right now, it's widely believed that they are the only Middle Eastern country um, with the nuclear arsenal. And so, um, just kind of begs the question um, of like who is entitled to their own nuclear program. And also um, with these like escalating tensions that you just basically um, summed up for us, uh, how concerning that's actually gonna end up being, so. Yeah, it, it's just, I mean, this is coming on 
13 years of Israeli involvement in this Iranian um, nuclear program. So it is really, it's really becoming more and more apparent, I think, and more and more, the international community is more and more aware of it. But I think America will have to eventually have to issue a statement, either condemning one side or the other. I doubt we'll see a Biden administration condemning Israel for its actions, because it'd be very uncharacteristic uh, from the American standpoint. But I do think that the recent talks about uh, reaching a new Iranian nuclear deal uh, will definitely take these into effect or take what these recent events into effect uh, because Iran is obviously not contempt with Israel bombing their sites and assassinating their generals and scientists. That is not, um, not very peaceful, but that is a little crash course on what's going on in Iran right now. Our last topic of the day is going to be, is going to come from Valerie and we're going to talk about Cuba and the resignation of Raul Castro. Hi everyone. A, a few days ago, Raul Castro resigned from the head of Cuba's Communist Party. Uh, the party has been in power since the revolution 60 years ago, and this will be the first person in power who is not a Castro since the party took power. And so the process of his re resignation has, has been underway for three years when Manuel Marrero um, Cruz elected as prime minister. And as stated by Cruz, um, the now leader of the Communist Party, uh, Comrade Ra Raul will still be consulted with and always present whenever they um, need to deliberate. And so it has been embedded in Cuba's constitution that only one party is allowed in the country. So do you all think that this will bring any change at all to Cuba? So honestly, I don't really see any change happening between the Biden administration and Cuban, Cuban relations anytime soon, really. And I mean, you just take into effect like this whole sunk investment fallacy, like we have been pretty aggressive. And this is like mutually reinforcing as well. Like we've been pretty aggressive with Cuba since, you know, the Cold War, even after, um, you know, think of like the helms Burton Act in like the 60s, which was basically like, hey, um, if you conduct business with Cuba, then you might lose, like your business CEOs might, you know, lose their visas um, and won't be able to enter the U.S. or participate in like the American free market, right? So we have a, a long history of just investment into these like, I guess, slight aggression with Cuba. And I mean, also thinking about how the Cuban interest groups in like, you know, the 90s, early 2000s, um, you know, children of those that were oppressed by um, Fidel Castro and them, you know, like influencing American foreign policy, because, you know, we're pretty lucky in the fact that, you know, American foreign policy does accept public opinion and it does that take that into like consideration. So, um, I mean, keeping all of that in mind, there's a possibility that we could be, you know, amending relations. Like I know Obama tried to when he was in office, but I honestly don't think it would be enough. I think something would have to happen, like, like some sort of economic strangling would have to happen for real change to occur between like America and, and Cuban relations. And that's just on that topic. Anyone else have any thoughts? Yeah. Uh like you said earlier, Obama did take significant steps uh, during his presidency. In early 2016, he visited Havana. He spoke with Castro in a keynote address with Raul Castro sitting in the audience. 
uh, Obama urged both countries to, to reform their state or their policies. But following the death of Fidel in 2016 and Donald Trump's elections, he really reversed everything that Obama had done. And when Biden was running, he, he uh, pledged to go back to what Obama had done. So they were, they're calling it a quote unquote Obama era thaw, like a thaw, ice thaw, interesting. But President Biden is definitely trying to warm these relations with Cuba. Um, obviously that would be beneficial to uh, the Democrats with uh, the large population of Cuban voters in Florida, uh, which was a very sticky situation for, Obama, or for Joe Biden in the 2020 election. Um, so with both uh, Biden's former foreign policy in mind, as well as really where the Democrats are trying to look to take more strides in the 2018 midterm, or 2022 midterms and the 2024 election, I think that we're definitely going to see easing up of America's policy on Cuba, as well as probably peaceful relations with Cuba for the first time since 1959, uh, which is pretty monumental. I mean, America doesn't make broad changes in foreign policy very often. And we're seeing a lot at the moment. So it's definitely been an interesting interesting couple of weeks for, for U.S. foreign policy and really the international stage. Um, I think another important thing to note is the fact that um, Cuba and Russia have reiterated their, um, I guess, mutual interest in maintaining cooperation. Uh, in fact, uh, Russia has expanded flights to Cuba. Um, so I think that's been pretty interesting as well. Yeah, of course. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how Joe Biden works the Russia side of this uh, equation. Because, I mean, Russia and Cuba obviously have been very intertwined the last 60 years, as America has been very non-intertwined. Uh, so that'll be that'll be very interesting as well. Thank you, Natalia. With that, um, that brings us to the end of our, our docket this evening. Uh, we had a great time talking about some international affairs. International affairs are always uh, pouring in. So there's always something going on. As we were recording this, uh, we just got word that the president of Chad was killed in clashes with rebel groups, which we will probably discuss on next, next week's episode. So when we get more information on that, we're going to continue our discussion of Israel and Iran in the next episode as we get more on that, as well as uh, Alexei Navalny um, and his state in uh, the Russian prison. Uh, with that, thank you all very much for attending the first episode of International Relations Sensation, a podcast put on by the UT International Relations and Global Studies Council. Uh, a thank you from me and from the rest of our staff.